Amen. You may be seated. Apologize for being a little warm. There's something wrong with the thermostat, and the deacons got right on it, and it wasn't working at all for the first service. It was pretty crispy in here. I know I'm soft. I like to keep my house at 62, if I can help it. Um, So this is very, very tropical. But we are here uh, focused on the Word of God, and that will help us for sure. Uh, Please turn to Acts chapter 4. This is an action-packed book that we are studying. It is just one uh, episode after another of God's work in the church to expand the church. Um, Here we are, 2018, uh, almost 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit for the expansion of the kingdom. I mean, over that some 2,000 years, the, the church of Jesus Christ has only enjoyed, I'll use that word lightly, enjoyed about two months without persecution. And those two months happen in the time after Jesus rises again until chapter 4 of the book of Acts. We have come to the first of waves of persecutions that have come upon the people of God since that time. It's the first very official um, crackdown on the Christian faith coming from the religious in this sense and in this setting. You remember the backdrop in chapter 3, Peter and John are used by God to bring healing to this crippled man who is in the temple court. This man had been crippled his whole life, never been able to walk on his own strength, and here, after 40 years, he is healed by Peter and John in the name of Jesus Christ. And this creates a commotion, and Peter takes advantage of this and preaches Jesus Christ, uh, trusting in Christ, to believe on Christ. He calls them out for their sin how they contributed to his death, and then calls them to believe on Christ. Well, when this commotion occurred, um, the captain of the temple guard, basically the chief of security in the temple, he sees and other leaders see, and we have the episode before us. Here as I read God's holy word, Acts 4, 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Dear Father, we remember the words of Jesus that warned us about people hating him before they would hate us. For the most part, being Christian in the United States hasn't been too hard. It has gotten harder in recent years, and the prospect of opposition against biblical Christianity is is certainly mounting, but still, Lord, we are here worshiping on your day in your house without fear. So many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the world around us, cannot have or do not have this same grace. Lord, we have tasted your grace in the person of Jesus. We have read and believed the accounts about what Jesus fulfilled and accomplished according to your holy word. We have experienced the peace that only you can give, the forgiveness of our sins. In light of your goodness and grace to us in Christ, we cannot but speak of him. Please give us zeal to witness for Christ, no matter what the cost may be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we come to Acts chapter 4, where opposition and persecution begins for Christianity, this side of Jesus' ascension. Jesus warned his disciples in a general way back in the book of John, chapter 15. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But Jesus was even more specific at a different instance that Mark records. Listen to what he says in the Gospel of Mark to his disciples had to resonate with them at this moment. Jesus said, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogue, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. And here's the great advice, the great counsel given. Don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Of course, some years later, Paul warns the young pastor Timothy at Ephesus, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What's true of Christ will be true for his followers at some level and at some point. Persecution, opposition to Christ and to those associated with Christ is inevitable. 
there are really two truths that come out of this passage that we can see. First, we see the grace of God in Christ transforming Peter and John in particular. It's so liberating to Peter that he goes from being this this scared person to this bold proclaimer of Christ. This is going to be the third Christ-centered sermon he gives in these short four chapters already. The grace of God in Christ is so liberating and so magnificent that when it comes upon us, not just Peter, when it comes upon us, when we realize our sins are really forgiven, when that guilt's been lifted because of Christ, we cannot but speak of it. We cannot but speak of it. But there's another truth that's manifested. Whenever and wherever the good news of Christ is declared, you can be sure that there will be opposition. This is the pattern. When we witness the power and the presence of Jesus, we must bear witness. But whenever and wherever the good news of Christ is declared, there will be opposition. The first seven verses show how this opposition comes upon Peter and John after this miracle of healing the man and preaching this sermon about Jesus. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Why? Verse 2, greatly annoyed because of the miracle? That's not what it says. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now notice how quickly this opposition comes. They go public, they're in the temple court, preach a message, and immediately three different groups are identified. Um, Priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Then you go down to verse 5 and you get the full lineup of all the opposition. No fewer than ten different opposition groups based on just this quick sermon by Peter after the healing of the man. In verse 5, several others are identified. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, Annas, who's called the high priest. He was actually deposed by the Romans, but still recognized as a high priest by the Jews. An honorary title of sorts. Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest according to the Romans, the one who oversaw Jesus' trial, he's there also. He's the son-in-law to Annas. John and Alexander, we don't know who these individuals are, but they're high-ranking. Because it says, and all who are of the high priestly family. Normally, those are made up of Sadducees. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. It wasn't just the declaration of Jesus being raised, that's true. But it's in Jesus, or in association with Jesus, resurrection could be had. They were declaring Christ, and that is what brought opposition. That's what brings opposition, is the declaration of Jesus as Savior, as the one who can defeat death as you are in him, as he defeated it himself. And you'll notice in the passage, a major part of the opposition are the Sadducees. Throughout the book of Acts, the Sadducees show up again as opposition. The Sadducees were very important socially in Jewish structure, Um, the first century especially, They came to power between the Testaments, between the Old and the New Testament. During the Maccabean Revolt, there was a a return, a restoration of Jewish pride, and the Sadducees, who were of a religious order of the Jews, became more politically minded, more concerned with the status of their ethnic group. So the Sadducees were not supernaturalists. They weren't about the religion of the Jews. They were about the status of the Jews and culture. 
They believed the messianic idea was simply the Jews rising to a certain, a, a certain power among the people again. And so the Sadducees have a lot to lose with this supernatural talk about resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that this kind of talk would get people to follow after Jesus and this growing uh, cult group that would start to believe in this. They would start following after Jesus and they would not pay tribute to them, those who were in power over the social-political system of the Jews at this time. So they oppose what is being said and spoken. The message of Jesus is what brings this opposition out. Verse 2, they were greatly annoyed. Why? Because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Annoyed, exasperated, frustrated with the teaching that the apostles were doing. What did they do? Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This opposition comes to an official capacity. They use their authority to, to apprehend somebody and put them uh, in lockdown. It's too late to gather the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, so they have to stay there till the next day. We can understand not just Peter and John, but it seems as though the man who was healed is also with them. Verse 4, Luke is careful to mention an important detail. Despite this opposition, despite how this persecution came, Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000, up from 3,000 just two chapters earlier. Now there are 5,000 men. We can understand there were women and children in this group too. The number could be triple what is mentioned here. Peter and John are arrested, held overnight. Persecution comes, but the church does not stop growing. People believe the word that was preached. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So now it's taking on an even more uh, official form with great gravity. Verse 6, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. I mean, they're all there. And all who are of the high priestly family. They understood what was at stake if the people believed in the risen Christ and that they could be risen in Christ too. This is a a gathering of the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Elders, the Council of the Seventy-One. And they begin by questioning Peter and John. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Now imagine for the apostles what a flashback this is. Just a few weeks prior, this same kangaroo court had Jesus in front of them. We've seen this before. They had to be thinking. And why would this court case go any differently? They had to believe they were going to die. They had to believe that might have been God's will for them. And that's what persecution brings to Christians, if we're honest. It could bring that. It very well could. By what power or by what name did you do this? Because of their association with Jesus Christ, their actions were scrutinized. There was a bias against Christ in anyone associating themselves or their lives with him. And here's the thing. Living according to the teachings of Jesus will gain the attention of those around us. Speaking about the claims of Christ will make people fix their gaze upon us. Now, 
Where might we in our day and age face such opposition? We have been very blessed, very blessed with a legacy that has allowed for freedom for Christians to be devoted to Jesus. But lots has changed. There are ways in which you may already be experiencing some opposition to your being a Christian. It could happen socially for sure. Uh, The more secularized a culture becomes, the more committed to secular humanism ideas. It's a religion on its own. It's just a belief in humanity and that humanity collectively will decide what the right norms are, what right and wrong are. The more the culture comes to rely upon that kind of thinking, the more Christianity stands out. Christians could find themselves more and more unwelcome in certain social settings, even certain neighborhoods. It's possible that could be happening now. It could happen at the workplace. I know some have already experienced that even in our own congregation. As the culture becomes more secularized, corporations and companies become more sensitive to what the norms of the culture are. Whatever the culture's on, they get on. Companies and employers might compel employees to support things that Scripture opposes. It could cost Christians jobs. It could happen at school. The culture at universities has long been trending in an anti-Christian direction. That shouldn't come as much of a surprise. But even on those campuses, we have Christian groups that are evangelistic or they help people who become Christians grow in Christ, and they're less and less welcomed on university campuses. There's more and more of a fight to even let them operate connected to a university. The culture at public schools is getting worse also. With the legalization of gay marriage a few years ago, there's been a huge push towards the idea of equality, at least what they say, but that's not really what it means. In reality, it's, it's a promotion of the acceptance of homosexuality that's even taught in elementary curriculum. High school teachers sometimes find themselves having to actually promote LGBTQ pride-type movements. This won't get better. If a Christian voices opposition to these things, they will come under scrutiny. It could even happen on your sports teams. You know, we engage in sports with our youth. It's kind of an escape from everything else. Go out and play a game. In recent months, though, there was a very talented soccer player named Jaylene Hinkle who was a top prospect for the U.S. women's national team. She had already had eight appearances with the national team. The up-and-coming right defensive uh, player for the team in the years to come for sure. The team last summer, through the U.S. Soccer Association, required that the players wear an LGBTQ pride shirt. This isn't about being jerks towards people or discriminating against people. This has to do with promoting a pride in this. And she was moved in her spirit about this. She's a believer. She declined the call-up, even though you never decline a call-up. You're called up to go to the team, you go to the team, and she declined it for those reasons. The Washington Post reports... Jaylene Hinkle's decision not to play for the U.S. women's national soccer team last summer was, she said, a simple one. Because of her religious beliefs and a decision by U.S. soccer to highlight LGBTQ Pride Month with special jerseys during their June 2017 friendly matches, Hinkle declined a call-up from the team, something she said she had dreamed about her entire life. I just felt so convicted in my spirit that it wasn't my job to wear this shirt. I gave myself three days to just seek and pray and determine what he was asking me to do in this situation, speaking of God. I'm essentially giving up the one dream that little girls dream about their entire life, and I'm saying no to it. I think there's, this is where peace trumps the disappointment. I knew in my spirit I was doing the right thing. I knew I was being obedient. Hinkle, who's just 24, 
She made eight prior appearances, but has not been called up this calendar year since she turned down that call-up. It could also happen in the field of arts and entertainment. Our beloved elder Bob Albright, who went home to glory a few months back, uh, many of you didn't know how he was an actor by trade, taught acting in college, and then was part of the arts community here in Kansas City for 15-plus years. Some wondered why Bob hadn't been active in local productions in recent years. One of the reasons that Bob had to get out of acting was when his Christian commitment became known, that community basically blackballed him. He got fewer and fewer job opportunities. He was active in the repertoire theater and other places, and at that time there weren't Christian theater groups like there are now, and he basically, jobs dried up for him because of his commitment to Christ. And if you know Bob, he was by no means obnoxious about things. A commitment to Christ can be costly. We may experience serious opposition and possibly even persecution for our association with Christ. But when this happens, we are to follow the example of Christ and the example of the apostles and be assured that God will be there for us and with us. We must give bold proclamation of Christ when given the opportunity. Verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? At that moment, there was a decision to be made. This is a court that will frame us. They did it to Jesus, they'll do it to us, so we're not going to say a thing they could have said. By what name did you do this? Despite the persecution, we see the numbers of Christians going from 3,000 to 5,000. Peter's certainly thinking of what he should respond with. James Boyce said, well, the world thinks that it can stop a spiritual movement by threats, force, imprisonment, and death but it cannot. A good idea, especially a true spiritual idea, will always spread. By what power, by what name did you do this? Peter could have just said, the miracle was done by Jesus and left it there. That would have been pretty pretty bold. But instead we read in verse 8, then Peter, filled, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, Don't fret those moments. The Lord will send his spirit and give you the boldness, the carefulness, even the compassion to say what's true when it's time to say it about Jesus. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, in daunting times when you wonder if you'll have the bravery to speak, the Holy Spirit assists. All believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, This filling is a reference to a special pointed ministry of the Spirit for a particular task at a certain time, to give strength, special strength. The Holy Spirit can give us a a shot of divine boldness when speaking about Christ to others. And this is what happened with Peter. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, who we know was standing there, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Now he's quoting Psalm 118, which by the way, the Jews thought was talking about Israel. The stone is Jesus. Israel, the builders who threw him out. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
What a sermon. Yeah, he could have just said, by Jesus. But the Spirit compelled him to declare Christ in fullness. Let it be known by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What a sermon, too, by the way. A four-point sermon by Peter. A lot quicker than I would get through a four-point sermon. Look at the four points. Let it be known by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified. He puts the death of Jesus squarely on them. Bold. He's done this two times before. Whom God raised from the dead. So God defeated your activity and raised him from the dead, proving he's Messiah. By this man, this man, Jesus, this man is standing before you well. So they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. The purpose of God was to establish, was established in spite of the opposition. And Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. Verse 12 is a monumental declaration that it's impossible to misinterpret. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That reality compels Peter to speak. He can't hold back this declaration in this light. The boldness of Peter's response and in his earlier sermons, it's due to the transformation that Christ had made upon him personally. He once feared death greatly, but not anymore. The same cast of characters that he was standing before had Jesus before them a few weeks prior. They could not keep Jesus dead, so Peter was brave to speak. What's there to fear when we believe in the risen Christ? Who should we be scared of when our Savior is alive? What can man do to us in any ultimate sense? This is the new Peter. This is the Peter who now realizes this. Peter was changed and emboldened by the resurrection of Jesus and the ongoing ministry of Christ that he witnessed personally. They all saw with the healing of this man most recently. Preach and trust God for the response. Peter asserts Jesus as the exclusive way of salvation. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no, one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God will give you, in much lesser circumstances, probably with a lot less pressure, but the Spirit will be no less with you to guide you and direct you into what you should say, to be bold when the time comes to declare Christ. And remember this, the main issue we speak to as Christians, they're not all the secondary issues that present. We have to address those. But the main issue that we speak to is Jesus Christ and clarity about the need to trust in him and his finished work. That's what we never stop declaring. We sometimes get sidetracked into debates that may be necessary, but remember, the purpose is so that we may de- declare Christ. You'll have to stand up for biblical principles, especially in a culture that fights against those. But let us be sure to direct the reason back to our Savior and his standards. If we say sin is not sin, people are complacent in where they are, and they don't realize they need a Savior. That's why we have to speak to those issues. But we're pointing them to the Savior. That's the point of the whole thing. We are proclaiming Christ more than we're condemning particular sins. The sins are a way to point to Christ in his standards and his teaching. And finally, you see, starting at verse 13, they let the chips fall, Peter says what needs to be said, and now trust God for the response. Speak the truth, do so carefully, Do so guided by the Spirit, 
and then let the chips fall providentially. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And here's a short little profound phrase. It's at this moment, something dawns on the Sanhedrin as they're looking at these men. And they recognize, verse 13, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. Oh, that's different. These are just two fishermen who's taught. They were with Jesus. They all remembered what happened there. And you could see the gravity of what's going on here. If people believe in the resurrection, it won't take long before they realize these are the people who condemned him in the first place. And his resurrection defeated what they did. It's all coming back at them now. They're just trying to save themselves at this moment. They recognize that they had been with Jesus. But here's the problem. Guess who's standing next to him? The guy who was leaping and dancing into the temple, healed. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. What could they really say? The crippled man healed in front of them. They couldn't disprove Jesus' resurrection either, for that matter. In fact, interestingly, you never find the Sanhedrin after the resurrection of Jesus. Anytime the Jewish leaders are confronting anybody, and there's a lot of occasions, never do they dispute the fact of Jesus' resurrection. There's no disputing it. There's no body ever found, and people believed him to be alive. And he was still healing people while he was seated at the right hand of the Father, as the apostles declared. They offered no substantive evidence to the contrary of Jesus' resurrection, and nor has anyone ever. F.F. Bruce, who writes on this passage, observes the following. It is particularly striking that neither on this nor any subsequent occasion, so far as our information goes, did the Sanhedrin take any serious action to disprove the apostles' central affirmation, the resurrection of Jesus. Had it seemed possible to refute them on this point, how readily would the Sanhedrin have seized the opportunity? If he didn't really rise again and they had a body, they would be saying that every time. The text mentions the man was 40 to show how long people had known that he was a cripple. This is not a case of a televangelist going in ahead of time and getting a few people in the crowd to act like they were, they were once crippled and then rise and jump around and then go on. This is a person they all knew. They all, someone probably grew up seeing. Undeniable. Most seemed to have nothing to say. And they hoped the apostles would back down, but the apostles did not. In this case, God provided an encouraging response. It's not always how it works. The response could be poor. could be bad for us. There are believers in Nigeria in the last week who have died brutal deaths because they are associated with Christ. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. They had nothing to say in opposition. Interestingly, verse 15 to 17, look at what is recorded there. This would be a private council between the members of the Sanhedrin. Ask yourself, um, how would Luke have access to this information, what happened in private? Look at what it says, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. I mean, they want to deny it, but they can't. Everyone believes it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, his, in this name. How do you think he found out? 
Well, certainly the Holy Spirit could give Luke that information as he's writing. But the Holy Spirit usually uses normal means. And it's possible that among that 70, there were several of them who believed. And later, as they come to faith, they, they share what happened in that private council meeting at this pivotal moment in the history of the church. It could also be that the Apostle Paul himself was there as a member of the Sanhedrin. And he tells Luke, we know that Gamaliel was there. He was a member of the Sanhedrin in these times. We have records to show it. He's there, and he's Paul's mentor. We get to see what's said in council. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. How many of them are thinking, I know this isn't going to work, but we're going to tell these guys. We're going to try to scare these guys. We're going to make it so they don't want to tell. What a, what a, I like the new Peter much better than the old Peter. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them. And I want you to notice how the answer, you know, when we declare the name of Christ or we stand up for something, we don't have to do so in an, in an obnoxious way. Um, they did a careful dialogue. They were careful in their words, but they were bold. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. May that be our motto, your motto and mine. Knowing what Christ has done for us, what we've seen in our own lives, what we've read in the scriptures. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I can't be quiet about this. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This persecution, in this case, they got away without being harmed. They were flogged other times and they all died martyrs' deaths. But in this moment, God used that bold declaration to give other people boldness and bravery to speak in a similar way. It completely backfired. Their boldness in this moment that seemed so unlikely was used by God to multiply the church. We cannot but speak. There's a a story told from the Civil War era where there was a pastor, Peter Cartwright. He was preaching, and it was told to him prior that President Andrew Jackson was there. They told him, go easy. The president's here. So Peter Cartwright said, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. (laughs) And Andrew Jackson said in response, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Derek Thomas comments on this passage, when civil or religious authorities forbid what God requires or require what God forbids, some form of civil disobedience with acceptance of penal consequences becomes inescapable. No Christian engages in such a response lightly, but no authority may overrule our requirement to obey God. In any given culture, there are flashpoints. I think we all know this. In any given culture, there are certain flashpoints where Christians stand out because the norm of the culture confronts biblical Christianity. Because of Christian principles or biblical truths, Christians speak out 
or might even protest something that is happening. Uh, The issue could be something like abortion. It could be marriage, as we've seen in recent years. In recent times, in particular, this matter of homosexuality. We have to be careful about what we're communicating when we protest something that has become a cultural norm. The presenting issue isn't really the cause. The cause for Christians is declaring the name of Christ. If we say nothing when a sin is is called righteousness, we devalue the need for Christ, the one we proclaim. So that's why we have to speak to those things. They're God's standards. But we have to do very carefully and humbly. Uh, The presenting issue, that's the flashpoints, usually secondary to the main thing we're about, the declaration of Christ and all people's need for him. Remember, there's no sin that Christ cannot forgive for the one who seeks him in repentance. The danger of saying a certain sin is okay in a culture, it has the effect of driving people away from seeking the salvation they actually need. Uh, So our passion isn't on the first to oppose abortion or to oppose homosexuality. Our passion is to proclaim the need for people to turn from sin and to Christ for forgiveness, and we should lead by example in that. Because we come to verse 12, and we have to declare this. There is salvation in no one else. And here's the thing, we need salvation. A culture that doesn't think it needs salvation is doomed for hell. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We should be persecuted for our faith in Christ and our refusal to stop declaring his gospel, not our opposition to certain things on the first. There are two truths revealed by this passage that seem to go hand in hand. The grace of God in Christ is so liberating and so magnificent that we simply must share. We cannot but speak. Also, though, whenever and wherever the good news of Christ is declared, there will be opposition. Again, in the passage, they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than To God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Derek Thomas says on this passage also, the principle that the gospel of Jesus Christ faces hostility for an unbelieving world is not bound only to the time and frame of the Acts of the Apostles. Satan hates zeal for Jesus Christ, no matter where or when it manifests itself. Courageous witnesses and fearless preaching were as threatening to the kingdom of darkness then as they are now. Here's a final piercing thought for me and for you. If we are not, if you are not, facing some level of opposition in your life for the declaration of faith in Christ that you say you have, perhaps we, perhaps you, are not declaring Jesus so clearly. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, it has always been the case that your people experience some kind of opposition, even persecution, for their association with Jesus. In such times, whenever and wherever they may come, please give us boldness like Peter by filling us with your Holy Spirit so that we might declare your grace in Christ. Lord, may the opposition that we experience give us opportunity to proclaim the gospel so that many might come to repentance and faith. Lord, if and when we are told to be silent about what Jesus has done for us, please give us the kind of bravery that we see in this passage. May we also say, 
for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Amen. Let us respond by singing uh, 631. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 4 as the elders prepare the table from every stormy wind that blows. Verses 1 through 4, we'll stand. <clears throat>